Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast, where we're going to be discussing two papers, Recent Trends in Cerebral Palsy Survival, Part 1, Period and Cohort Effects, and Part 2, Individual Survival Prognosis, both written by Jordan Brooks, David Strauss, Robert Chevelle, Lynn Tran, Louis Rosenblum, and Yvonne Wu. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Jordan Brooks, epidemiologist at the Life Expectancy Project, San Francisco, California, USA, and Dr. Sue Reed, epidemiologist at the Developmental Disability and Rehabilitation Research Group, Murdoch Children's Research Institute, Melbourne, Australia, who has written a commentary on the articles. Please can we start with you, Jordan, to outline the paper and its background. Sure. Thank you, Peter. Uh, I think it's probably appropriate to begin with a brief discussion of the motivations for studying life expectancy. Um, At a very broad level, we all intuitively understand life expectancy to be perhaps the most essential measure of population health. And at the individual level, and in particular for individuals with cerebral palsy or other conditions that necessitate lifelong care, Life expectancy, or more accurately, the probabilities of survival to each additional year of age, play an essential role in planning and and also in the computation of expected costs of future care. Similarly, with regard to trends, there's a broad interest in that it gives us a sense of whether purported clinical advancements or public health efforts have actually led to improved outcomes. And again, at the individual level, Uh, The identification of trends helps us to construct more accurate estimates of survival prognosis. Uh, The study that we're discussing today is a two-part article on survival of persons with CT in California. And by way of background, I should mention that our group uh, has published on this topic since the early 1990s. In general, we aim to provide updates every few years to reflect the latest available data. So really, this research is the latest report in an ongoing study of persons with CT in California. The study participants are clients of the state's Department of Developmental Services, and for each of these clients, medically indicated care and services are provided through an entitlement by state law. Um, In particular, the vast majority of care and services are provided entirely free of charge, uh, regardless of family income or assets. Our latest report covers the period from 1983 to 2010 and contains information on well over 50,000 children and adults with cerebral palsy. The first part of the article is really a technical examination of trends in mortality over time, while the second part provides practical estimates of survival probabilities and life expectancies. And I think the key message uh, is that we found significant improvements in childhood mortality rates. In particular, we found reductions in disability-specific mortality rates on the order of 2.5% per year uh, throughout the study period. In contrast, however, we found that there were no major trends in teenagers or adults, um, though we did find a modest trend, a reduction of just under 1% per year in the age-specific mortality rates for adults who were dependent on gastrostomy feeding. In the second part of the paper, we incorporated the observed trends into the estimation of survival probabilities and life expectancies for individuals. And we really hope that these estimates, along with the article's discussion, serve as a practical guide to evidence-based prognosis for individuals with CP. I thought I might start the discussion with what might be, I think, considered the simplest question, and that is about comparisons between studies in overall survival of individuals with all levels of severity of cerebral palsy. I ask this because there are significant differences between studies in their methodology, 
And most of the studies that have been published outside the Californian project have arisen from epidemiological cerebral palsy registers in the UK, in Sweden and in Australia, including ours in the Australian state of Victoria. It's since the Californian data arrived from a service delivery database, as you explained, and not an epidemiological registry, I wonder, Jordan, if you can comment on how similar survival probabilities have generally been between the different kinds of studies, and, and particularly between countries which would most likely have quite different models of healthcare. So I think this is an important question, one that uh, our research group has focused on fairly extensively over the last several years. We've published examples of such comparisons of the California data with uh, the registries from the UK, Western Australia, and Sweden, and found that the survival probabilities were remarkably consistent. But it's important to make clear that when we make these comparisons, we're comparing like children with like. So we really want to make sure that we're strictly controlling for the, the pattern and severity of disabilities when we make such comparisons. Otherwise, the comparisons don't make much sense. Um, as I mentioned, we've published several examples of these, and we actually have uh, some, some unpublished examples as well where we've compared our results to the survival probabilities published by Tuyama et al. in Japan. And actually also, Sue, we've, we've done some informal comparisons with uh, your own data from Victoria and found very similar survival probabilities. Okay, thanks, Jordan. I think that we'll move on to one of the ways that survival data are often used, and that is in the prediction of future life expectancy for the individuals with cerebral palsy based on measures of severity and medical complexity of the condition. However, I think that in predicting survival, particularly for the most affected individuals, the different studies have used different measures of severity, as you've said, and we, we need to be looking at comparing like with like. Uh, and this is, I think the reason why different measures are used is because people are using whatever data are available to them. As far as the Victorian register is concerned, we have only limited data that discriminate between individuals with cerebral palsy. For instance, in terms of mobility, we can only really identify persons who use a wheelchair from those who use mobility aids or walk independently. We're not able to discriminate between GMFCS levels 4 and 5 because many older individuals on our registry do not have those recorded. We do, however, have data on epilepsy, on intellectual impairment and sensory impairments. I should mention, too, that most of the clinical measures that we use relate to childhood and are not necessarily updated as children become adolescents and adults. So I think the issue of differences between the published estimates of life expectancy for individuals is clearly an important one because important decisions are based around these estimates. I find that I'm often asked, usually in relation to litigation claims, why the life expectancy figures from the Victorian Register differ from those published from the California group. Therefore, I thought this would be a good opportunity for you, Jordan, to explain how the Californian data differ from data from 
epidemiological registries such as the one I manage and what implications these differences might have for survival prognosis estimates. Uh, certainly. I think the, the first point I'd like to make is that actually our data sources are not all that different. There are probably a lot more similarities than differences. In California, we also have measurements of functional skills, medical diagnoses, and other, other data starting in young childhood. And then these uh, functional assessments are actually updated longitudinally for each individual through annual evaluations. So I guess this, this is a little different in that we do have these age-specific measures uh, of functional skills updated over time. However, we can also look at survival based on the functional skills uh, measured at or around, say, age five, as you do in, in the Victorian registry. So in that sense, we are able to make some valid comparisons. In terms of how the, the data differs, it may be best to... Uh, start by explaining that our, our data is collected through a standardized questionnaire called the Client Development Evaluation Report. And this records, uh, I think, over 200 items related to medical diagnoses, functional skills, and special health care requirements like the need for a feeding tube and other aids. And these assessments have been validated against individual medical records. I think that the key bit here is that we just have a lot of information on some of the more basic motor function items. So, for example, Sue, you mentioned that in the Australian data, you have very limited information. For example, uh, ambulation is, is the primary measure of mobility, but in California, we have much more detailed information on the basic gross motor items like standing, crawling, sitting, rolling, and uh, head control, and, and these seem to be absent in some of the other uh, registers. And we've observed that the survival um, can depend very strongly on, on some of these very basic gross motor items. And so in, in our papers, we've made distinctions in the life expectancies for children uh, based on differences at, at these very low levels of uh, gross motor function that, that just haven't been made in some of the uh, studies from other countries. And I think for this reason, because we have such detailed information on these very basic items, the California prognosis results are often more helpful um, in discussing the outcomes for children with very severe disabilities. But on the other hand, I think the big limitation of the California system is uh, that it is service-based. So at the other end of the spectrum, we won't have any information on persons whose disabilities are so mild that they don't require specialized services for their CP. And I think that for these children, the epidemiological registers are certainly a better source of information. I think I, I've come to the conclusion that... Um, there are probably advantages in being able to consider all the available estimates of survival, particularly when they're done in conjunction with a comprehensive physical assessment in making survival predictions for particular individuals. Do you agree with that, Jordan, or um, do you think that there are more advantages in the more detailed information available from California? Well, I don't think that those options are mutually exclusive. I, I certainly agree that when you're discussing evidence-based prognosis, then all of the relevant evidence should be considered. And I think that there is merit in, in the argument that uh, local data should be preferred for local cases, sort of other, other things being equal. And what I mean by that is if, indeed, the studies from the local registers 
properly capture an individual's pattern of disability, which uh, I think we all agree is the most important factor for prognosis, then I think there's something to be said for using the local data. The, the difficulty is when you have cases for which the individual is much worse or much better than the average uh, of the comparison group considered. And, and that's true not just for the Australian registers, but also the California registers. So certainly within the comparison groups that we've studied, there's still a range of severity, even within the very narrow groups that, that we've studied. And I think that's the key message. It's how does the individual compare to the average within the comparison group that you're using to make your uh, prognosis estimate. And if the individual's condition, overall condition, is uh, better than the average, then I think you need to make some upward adjustment to the survival probabilities and life expectancies. And, and conversely, if they're worse than average, uh, you need to make a downward adjustment. So to answer the second part of your question, I think that when the California data is able to better, better capture an individual's pattern of disability, then yes, I, I think there's something to be said for preferring or, or at least giving higher weight to that evidence. But certainly all relevant evidence should be considered. Thanks, Jordan. I think that's probably very useful information for um, people who are, are making those predictions fairly frequently. I'd like to move on now to the issue of trends in survival. Even though we would probably expect to have seen improvement in survival over the past few decades, the only studies that have been able to do so are your Californian studies, with the latest paper, of course, as you said, being an update on earlier data and confirming improvement in survival in children, particularly those unable to lift their head in prone and those who are tube-fed. And I think one of the nice things about your paper is that it really clarifies for readers the difference between the two different types of studies that are around that we've already alluded to in the questions they're able to answer and the methodologies that they use. So in the paper, you differentiate between period and cohort effects and explain that studies arising from cerebral palsy registers such as the Victorian register are examples of studies that typically use cohort effect analysis. And the methodology for survival analysis using both cohorts is really, I think, relatively simple. If I might just explain a little bit about that because the Victorian register is one of those registers. So what we do is using a, a variety of data sources, we try and identify as early as possible all children who fit the definition of cerebral palsy who were born in a defined geographical area and from a particular birth year. We confirm the diagnosis and collect clinical information on each child, at, usually at around age five. And then we use data linkage with mortality databases to identify persons who have died. So in the case of the Victorian register, only deaths occurring in Australia are actually ascertained. So the study cohort only changes really if new cases are identified and in some cases if the child is no longer deemed to have cerebral palsy but it doesn't change when people move in or out of the area or according to whether or not they receive services. 
So the cohort effect analyses are therefore, as you state in the paper, um, able to ask the question about whether mortality rates across the lifespan are lower for persons born in more recent calendar years compared to earlier years. And that is irrespective of other changes that may have occurred, such as changes in severity over time or in treatment opportunities. I mean, I, I think, and I said in the commentary, that um, an advantage of this approach is that cohort effects take into account whether treatment options were commonly available at the most appropriate time for each individual across the lifespan. Since the Californian studies use the period effect analysis approach rather than cohort effects, I think it would be useful, Jordan, if you could explain how your studies are different from what I've just, just described and why it is that in your data you need to make a whole lot of adjustments when analyzing your data that we don't make. Sure. So I think, uh, and, and we discussed this previously, that the analysis of cohort effects and the analysis of period effects are actually complementary approaches. We have focused on the period effect analysis, which has a very specific research question, and, and that is whether the mortality rate for persons of a specific age and a specific pattern of disability at that age has declined over time. So to put it simply, the question is, uh, for example, did seven-year-olds who couldn't walk have lower mortality rates in 2010 than they did in 1990, uh, similar seven-year-olds in 1990. And in, in our research studies, we found the answer to this question was uh, really a resounding yes, and we found significant period effect improvements uh, in this sense for all children up to age 15 and across all disability strata. So I think one reason why we prefer the, the period effect is that it allows us to better isolate trends within specific age groups, for example, children, young adults, and older adults, and for persons with uh, very specific patterns of disability within those age groups. Uh, as you mentioned, the uh, cohort effects really focus on changes in overall survival related to year of birth, and that uh, the, these are irrespective of uh, potential changes in, in the case mix with regard to severity of disability. I think that the period effects may provide a better inference for trends at the individual level um, because we're focusing on trends for persons of a specific age and a specific pattern of disability at that age. In contrast, I think the cohort effects, uh, because they reflect changes in both survival and the case mix over time, uh, may be more appropriate for analysis at the population level, but it, it really depends on the research question. I, I think I've got this right. So the reason why you need to adjust in the Californian data is because being a service directory, there are different people are included in that cohort each time you analyze the data. So there are likely to be changes in, I guess, relative severity or as you say in the case mix at different time points. So there is a need then to make adjustments to adjust for any of those changes. Is that the way you see it? I think you might be overstating it just, just a little. For the most part, the people in our database, at least when we're, when we're considering children, are children that 
uh, have been born in California and are, are growing up in, in the California system. There are certainly cases of people uh, moving, migrating to California, and uh, I'd imagine that in some cases it's specifically for the services that the state of California provides. Um, it's, it's probably unlikely that uh, many people would migrate out of the state um, because California is, I believe, unique in, in the sense that it provides all care as an entitlement free of charge. You don't have to be born in California to receive that entitlement, but once you leave, the other states don't don't have that entitlement. So I don't think that out-migration is a serious issue. In-migration could be an issue, but when we look at some rough estimates of overall CP prevalence based on the California data, they're generally in line with what we see from other states. So it's not as if we have a major influx of people with disabilities coming to California simply for the services. Does that make sense? Yes, thanks. So I think you said that you would agree that the two methods that we've talked about provide really complementary information about survival in cerebral palsy. And, you know, that's the way that I would see it, and I think it's useful to look at both. I still find it interesting, though, that the, the studies that are looking at cohort effects have not been able to show any changes over time between individuals born, say, in the 70s and those born later. But anyway, future research may clarify that, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, well, I'll just make a quick comment there. We did look at cohort effects in the California data, and it was very difficult for us to tease out anything uh, significant. We were able to find significant cohort effects for the most severely disabled children, namely those who were unable to lift their head and prone and were fed by gastrostomy. But when we looked at broader groups, we just didn't see major trends at all. So you know, given that we have such a large sample size, I'm not sure whether these cohort effects are ever going to really show up. And part of that, I think, may be that the cohort effect analysis doesn't focus on particular age categories. So we found that the period effects were quite strong for children, but there were really no effects whatsoever for adults. And when you sort of average the age-specific effects in a, in a cohort-type analysis where you're looking at both uh, childhood mortality and adult mortality as a function of birth year, I think that there may be some masking of the trends going on. Okay, well, maybe we should move on a bit to talk a little bit about causes of death in cerebral palsy. I think it's fair to say that regardless of whether or not we identify improvements in survival over time, we still have a long way to go in understanding causes of death in cerebral palsy and how um, causes of death might relate to trends in survival. I think respiratory causes we know are the leading cause of death in all studies that I know of, but the true frequency and types of respiratory causes have really been hard to capture. I know that certainly in Australia it's been difficult to identify the direct and underlying causes of death, mainly because of inconsistency in the way these are recorded on death certificates and the frequent recording of the cause of death as cerebral palsy. Um, this is particularly the case in Victoria on older death certificates when only one cause of death was reported. So perhaps, Jordan, you would like to describe now what your group has done with respect to causes of death in cerebral palsy. 
what the problems you have come across um, with this and what you might be planning to do in the future. Yes, so I, I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, everything that you, you said about difficulties with cause of death studies in, in Victoria also apply here in California. Um, the, the big issue, as you mentioned, is that quite often the underlying cause of death is simply listed as cerebral palsy, and this is uh, completely uninformative when we're trying to understand why people are dying prematurely and, and what the causal factors really are. I think the most recent study on cause of death from our group was from 1999, so I think we are due for an update, and we're planning to publish that update uh, sometime next year. We've, we've just sort of started the initial stages of that research. And in addition to looking at just the causes of death, which, again, give us an idea of how people die, I think the big question that we, we'd like to answer is why. Why are people dying prematurely, and, and what are the causal factors driving the, the trends that we've observed as well? These sort of why questions or causal effect questions are both the most interesting and most difficult to answer. With regard to trends, I think the question really has to be framed within a broader context of trends in the general population. And I think you mentioned earlier that most people are aware that general population mortality has been declining over the last several decades and life expectancy has been increasing. And with this background, I think most people expect that persons with cerebral palsy should also see some improvements. And indeed, in, in children, we did observe annual declines in mortality that were very close to what's been observed in the general population here in the States. The much more interesting question, I think, and perhaps a clinical or, or even societal challenge, is addressing why there have been no major improvements for uh, teenagers and adults uh, with cerebral palsy, at least with regard to their life expectancy. And interestingly, our research group has found a similar lack of improvement in the life expectancies of adults who have uh, other acquired neurological injuries, namely spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury. So this you know, this is a, a major concern. We haven't seen any trends toward improvements in adults with neurological disabilities. And I think as a first step towards identifying the, the reasons for this lack of improvement, we need to start by looking at uh, trends in specific uh, causes of death. And unfortunately, in, in CP, often the, the cause of death is simply listed as CP. The underlying cause is listed as CP. And so we're hoping to actually alleviate that problem to some degree by considering multiple or contributing causes of death that are listed on death certificates. Again, we don't actually have any results yet, and so this is still an open question, and we're really looking forward to investigating this soon. That sounds very interesting, Jordan, and I must say, in terms of using multiple causes of death, if the cause was listed as cerebral palsy, we certainly looked at other causes of death to explain what had really happened. So feel that really one has to do that. But certainly I think it would be very interesting to be able to look at what has changed in causes of death over time. I think it will be difficult, but certainly I think it will be very interesting. Can I just say one thing then in, in winding up, and that is that I felt that in the past there's appeared to be some deal of misunderstanding around the differences between studies in methodologies used with respect to survival and life expectancy in cerebral palsy. But I really do feel that we're now getting a much clearer idea of what those differences are, what they mean, and how they can be used to complement 
each other in furthering our understanding, and I, I think this is really a, a great thing. Oh, yeah, I certainly agree. I think you put it, put it very well. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Dr. Brooks and Dr. Reed for a fascinating discussion on a very complex subject with important clinical implications. Just to remind our listeners, the articles are Recent Trends in Cerebral Palsy Survival, Part 1, Period and Cohort Effects, and Part 2, Individual Survival Prognosis, by Brooks et al. in the November 2014 issue.